If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 18. Today we're going to begin in verse 24 and read all the way through verse 10 of chapter 19. (coughs) Today we're going to be looking at some (coughs) personal profiles. And we've got four we're going to look at today. Two from the text and two from church history. And these are all profiles of people who are in the ministry to some capacity and yet were not Christians. That's not what you want, is it? You want the pastor of your church to be a Christian. And normally, I think we assume that our pastor is a Christian, but history shows us that it is not always the case. The first profile I want to go through is John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. His story is one where for a time you have someone doing Christian ministry who was not a Christian. John Wesley was, of course, born to Christian parents. His father was a priest in the Church of England. His mother, uh, Susanna Wesley, was well known for her devotion to the Lord. He received the best of education. He became a double professor in Greek and philosophy, fathering in his uh, following in his father's footsteps, he would go on to be ordained in the Church of England and would serve as a parish priest for a couple of years. And while at Oxford, he was a part of a group called the Holy Club. This was not a name that members of the club gave to themselves. This was a name given by other students there at Oxford. The religious fervor at Oxford was a bit cold at the time. And so this this group that was pursuing holiness was seen as a bit fanatical. So the Holy Club met every morning from 6 to 9 where they would pray and read psalms and devotionally read from the Greek New Testament. Every hour they were awake, they prayed for several minutes, and every day they prayed for a specific virtue. They took communion every Sunday. They fasted every Wednesday and every Friday. They would go to prisons and preach to uh, the inmates and teach them. They cared for the sick. John Wesley would even record his daily activities hour by hour. He kept a log, not only of his activities, but also the resolutions that he kept and those that he did not keep. He also would go through every hour and keep a log of his temper of devotion. And there was a scale from one to nine. And he would rank himself every hour. And yet, at that point in his life, John Wesley was not a Christian. I want you to see 
that it's possible to do all that, to appear like an all-star, to belong to the holy club and not be saved. It's possible to be a part of all that and still be missing something. And we are reminded that saving faith is not keeping a daily record of your actions and ranking your temper of devotion from one to nine. Saving faith is a grace. The Holy Spirit works within us, whereby we accept and receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. More on that later. Wesley would then be invited to become a missionary and travel to Savannah, Georgia. He would minister to the residents in Savannah and also to the Indians, and it was a disaster. I've got some cousins who love John Wesley, and I was having some fun with them this week, just sending some funny memes I found. And there's one story where John Wesley, he's in Savannah. He falls in love with a young woman from Georgia named Sophia Hopke. But he hesitates to marry her because he sees his mission work as his priority and he's also flirting with the idea of celibacy and thinking that that might be better for his kingdom work if he just remains celibate. He drags his feet. And so she marries someone else. And then Wesley refuses to serve her communion. He'd cite the Book of Common Prayer and say, you know, well, she failed to notify me in advance that she intended to take communion, so I didn't serve her. But it was not a good look. It seemed spiteful. And it didn't end there. There were legal proceedings against him. He... Uh, would flee Georgia and return to England with his tail between his legs. And upon being forced back to England, Wesley wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Then the Moravians come into the story. The Moravians are a group of Christians that were from modern-day Czech Republic. They were followers of John Hus. Wesley met them, as I mentioned earlier. He met them on a ship that took him to Georgia. They were headed to the New World as well. And they experienced this storm. The English were terrified, but the Moravians just sang hymns and prayed. And it made a huge impact on John Wesley. And he felt that they had something that he did not. And so once he's back in England, he's despondent, he's beaten up, he's discouraged. And he says of himself that he was clearly convinced of his own unbelief and his lack of saving faith. And he's reminded of the Moravians. And so he seeks them out, a group of them out in London. And on the evening of May 24th, 1738, John Wesley wrote these words in his journal. In the evening, 
I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That night at Aldersgate, John Wesley became a Christian. And again, he would have described himself as a Christian when he was on campus at Oxford. He would have described himself as a Christian on that boat to Georgia. But if you ask elderly John Wesley, when he's looking back on his life, he would tell you he did not become a believer until Aldersgate. Until then, something terribly important was missing. Something absolutely essential to the salvation of his soul was missing. He was missing a heart that had been changed and brought to life by the Spirit of God. Scripture tells us that we have a heart of stone until God gives us a heart of flesh. We're told that we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins until God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive with Christ and saves us by grace. As Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again of the Spirit. It doesn't matter if you know more theology than most Christians. It doesn't matter if you're more dedicated than most Christians. It doesn't matter if you can devotionally read the scriptures in Greek. Or if you pray and fast or serve as a missionary. Or even in the church as a minister. All of that counts for nothing. Unless you have a heart that has been brought to life by God. Counts for nothing unless, as Wesley puts it, our hearts are strangely warmed. People could look at you and say, oh, they must be a part of that holy club. It's possible for them to think that of you and for you to still be under the condemnation of God. Because there has not been a regenerating, life-giving change of heart within you by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see today. We'll see it with Apollos, and we'll see it with the disciples of John who are there in Ephesus. These are impressive folks, especially Apollos, and yet they're missing something essential. They have an incomplete or partial faith. We'll look at that in a moment, but first let's pray. Father God, I do ask that you would work 
Would you work in our hearts this morning as your word is preached? John Wesley, prior to Aldersgate, is not some, anomaly, not some um, anomaly, but rather is all too common. So would you work? Would you warm our hearts this morning? Maybe for the first time. But as we sang in our first hymn, maybe the fires have grown cold. Father, I ask that you would warm them by your spirit. As we read your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Acts 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. Competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. And wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of uh, uh, Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, we've looked at our first profile, that of John Wesley. The second is of a Jew named Apollos that Luke introduces to us. He's going to be just as impressive as John Wesley, probably more so. He's a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was one of the major world cities at this time. It was in Egypt. It was a center of learning. I believe at this time it had the largest library in the world. 
This was a city that would have rivaled Athens. And Apollos is a product of Alexandria. He's an intellectual. He's eloquent. He's trained to be an effective orator. He knew how to make an argument. He could hold a crowd's attention. He could persuade people with his words. And in verse 26, we're told that he spoke boldly in the synagogue. And then in verse 28, after he arrives in Corinth, we're told he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that the Christ was Jesus. This is a very able, very capable man. Not only was he a product of Alexandria, but he's also a product of John the Baptist. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, maybe by John himself in Jerusalem, maybe by some of John's disciples who had traveled to Alexandria. We don't know. But John the Baptist's teaching played a significant influence in his life. He knows what the Old Testament scriptures said. He, he knew that we need a Messiah and that God has promised a Messiah. And now John the Baptist is preparing the way for this Messiah. And the time of his coming was at hand. And so we're to get ready. That's the message that Apollos is preaching. It's one he's preaching fervently. He deeply cares about this. He's passionate about this message. And yet, like Wesley as well, we see that he's missing something. This message that he's boldly, fervently proclaiming in the synagogue is incomplete. He's a man who is expecting Christ. Luke says in verse 25 that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John. Meaning all he knew was repent and get ready for the Messiah is coming. I think it's safe to say that he did not know about the cross. He did not know about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus would become sin for his people so that we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't know about the resurrection. He didn't know about the ascension. The Lord Jesus ascending to the Father and sitting down at his right hand. He didn't know about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He has an incomplete message. We've got something similar in our next profile. The next one is a group of 12 disciples of, again, John the Baptist. Paul meets them when he finally gets to Ephesus. You know, last week we looked at Paul telling the Ephesians, I will return to you if God wills. Well, God has obviously willed for Paul to make it back because he's there. And similar to the situation with Apollos, they may not have had the intellectual pedigree or the giftedness Apollos had, but they are dedicated to the same cause, the work of John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. 
And I just want to stop for a moment and comment. What, what does this say about the preaching of John the Baptist? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I've ever thought about this. I, I guess I've just assumed that Jesus' disciples, they scatter and go everywhere, but John's disciples and his preaching was just confined to the Jordan River Valley in Jerusalem. But that's not the case. We see that John's preaching, his disciples have made it all the way to Ephesus. They've made it all the way to Alexandria. This message that God had given John the Baptist has covered hundreds, if not thousands of miles. His preparation of God's people for the Savior wasn't limited to the Jordan River. And so you have these 12 disciples of John. They knew his teaching. They knew they were to call others to repentance, to get ready because the Lord was coming. But they didn't know that he'd come. And also they... It said they never even heard of the Holy Spirit. They knew of the Father. They were expecting the Son, but they'd never heard of the Spirit. We remember that a person can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a regenerate believer In the Lord Jesus, who does not know the Holy Spirit. I know that there are charismatic churches who teach the opposite. They'll teach that you can be a saved Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. And then there's this second baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. And so you have these two classes of Christians, some who have the Holy Spirit and some who don't. But the Scriptures will not allow us that bifurcation where some Christians have the Holy Spirit and others do not. These Ephesian disciples are like Wesley. They're like other religious individuals who are committed but have not been converted. And so what happens in both situations They are instructed in the truth. The gaps in knowledge are filled in. They're told, hey, this Messiah that you're anticipating, he has come. Priscilla and Aquila do this with Apollos. They take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And praise God, he is receptive. He doesn't act proud. He's teachable. He's humble. And by God's grace, he takes this new life and goes on to do an incredible work in the church in Corinth. And then with Paul and the disciples of John there in Ephesus, you have another mini Pentecost. Paul baptizes them, lays hands on them, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. couple lessons here. The first is a comment I read from Kent Hughes in his commentary on Acts. He says this, 
the truth of Christ and life in the Spirit comes to those who are humble enough to listen and be taught. It's a question for us to consider. Am I humble enough to listen and to be taught? What what would have happened if Apollos looked at Priscilla and Aquila and thought, "Where? who are you? I'm from Alexandria. I'm erudite. I'm gifted. What do you tent makers have to teach me? He would have been left with an incomplete gospel. Same with the disciples that Paul interacts with. If they had not been teachable, if they would have remained stubborn and continued in unbelief, like we see at the end of this passage with others, they would have remained without the Spirit and died apart from the Lord. And so there is a lesson here for us. I don't care how old you are to listen and be humble enough to be taught. Second application is to remember that God uses people. That's what we see, isn't it? God uses people. He can work without us. He can work above us. But ordinarily, God works through us. He works through his people. He worked through Priscilla and Aquila, accurately explaining the way of God to Apollos. He worked through Paul, speaking to John's disciples. And he continues to work through his people today. Here's your final profile. Great story from church history. It it concerns a monk named Thomas Bilney. This took place in England. Uh, Thomas Bilney was in the situation where he's a Christian and he's working underneath the authority and oversight of a superior who is not a Christian. And again, that's not all that unique on its face where your boss or the person in, in oversight above you may not be a believer. But it is a bit tricky when you're both working within the church. How do you open that conversation and have it end well? Uh, Father, after Mass today, I was wondering if I could have some of your time and talk with you about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. How, How do you do that? Not only was there this hierarchical relationship but also, the, the man, the priest over him was, was a big deal. Somewhat like Apollos, his, his name was Hugh Latimer. He was well-educated. He knew the scriptures. He knew who Jesus Christ was. He knew much about him. But his heart had not been strangely warmed. He hadn't been born of the Spirit And instead of receiving and resting upon the finished work of Christ, instead of believing that good news, he believed that it was his obedience. It was his good works that would merit his salvation. 
But this monk, despite this, admired the priest. And he thought, man, if, if Latimer was to be converted, he might do some great things for the church. And so this uneducated monk, after much prayer, came up with a plan. The next time Latimer was at the church, Bilney, this monk, approached him and asked if he, Latimer, would hear his confession. Latimer obliged, of course, this was something he was required to do, to hear confessions. So Latimer got on his side of the confessional and Bilney got on the other. And then that monk confessed aloud the gospel. He told how he was a sinner, how he was unable to save himself by his good works and his obedience and his own righteousness. He confessed that the Son of God had died for his sins and died to pay the terrible debt his sins deserved. And that now by faith, by accepting, receiving, resting upon the finished work of Christ alone for salvation, the righteousness of the perfect Son of God has now been credited to him. And so he can stand before God uncondemned. He could cry out to God, calling him Abba, Father. He had been made a co-heir with Christ and could approach the throne of grace boldly, knowing that he was covered in the perfect obedience of another. Hugh Latimer heard those words in the confessional and came out a changed man. Much like Wesley hearing someone read the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans. Latimer heard the good news for the first time, as it were, and was changed. You had a priest converted in a confessional. And it was an important moment for the English Reformation. Because if the name Hugh Latimer means anything to you, it's going to be associated with a very famous quote that he would make after he's condemned by the state for this same gospel. Under the tyrannical reign of Bloody Mary, Hugh Latimer would be tied to a stake and burned next to another gospel minister named Nicholas Ridley. And there, as he's being martyred, He spoke these famous words. Be brave, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by the grace of God, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. That was Latimer's dying confession. And it came because God used a monk named Thomas Bilney. God works through his people. Third and final application is one of gathering sticks and praying for the Lord to bring a spark. I went camping Friday night, built a fire. One thing you know you know anything about building fires, is that you have your firewood first before you start the fire. You don't, you don't light the starter and then run off in the woods to find kindling. 
You have the kindling stacked, ready. It's gathered. It's right there. And as the fire grows, you add it on. You know, I, I don't want to come across as dismissive when I'm talking about, let's say, Wesley's devotion, for example. All the things he did, the preparation that took place in his life and the lives of others. All the preparation that happened before their hearts were ignited by the Spirit. You know, it is true that devotionally reading the Greek New Testament counts for nothing unless you're regenerate. And all the fasting and praying and preaching, it counts for nothing unless you're born again. Apollos' knowledge and giftedness and fervor, it counts for nothing if he does not know Jesus. But that doesn't make those acts of devotion worthless. All of those individuals had been prepared. They'd been prepared by their parents. John Wesley was. They'd been prepared by people like John the Baptist. They'd been prepared by countless sermons they'd heard and discussions they'd had. And over the years, all this gospel kindling was built up and stacked around them until they were like a national forest on the West Coast, ready for the slightest spark, and that kindling would ignite. So here's an exhortation for us to prepare the kindling and pray that the Lord would cause it to ignite. As we saw with Thomas Bilney, he works through the ordinary, faithful Christian life. He worked through a Moravian minister on Aldersgate Street. He worked through a husband and wife who were tent makers. He worked through a missionary and a monk. All of them shared the words of life. And their hearers were changed. Their hearts were inflamed. And they would go on to be used in a profound way in the building of the church. And so that's what I'd like to end with today. A call for us to gather gospel kindling and pray to the Lord that he would bring a spark. This is what we do with our children, right? Day after day, month after month, year after year, we read to them, pray with them, teach them, have gospel conversations. And all of that is stacking kindling around them. And all the while, praying that the Spirit of God would cause the spark so that their hearts too might be strangely warmed. This isn't only with our children. It's the same with family members and co-workers and neighbors. Day after day, month after month, gathering the kindling and praying that God would do the work that only he can do. Now, some of this is done for People for the first time, maybe the heart is strangely warm for the first time, but maybe, again, as we sang earlier, your fire may have grown cold. So we seek this out. We don't need to 
be dismissive of these good works that God has called us to. He uses them in a profound way. So let's rest on Christ and then in resting on him, pursue this gospel obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're reminded that you use even people like us. Just as you used Priscilla and Aquila and you used Paul and you used a monk like Thomas Bilney, Lord, you will use your people. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to do your work, to speak the truth, to love our neighbor enough to speak the truth in love to them. Father, we do ask that you would work. And Father, for those of us who have come to know you, for those of us who, who have cried out to you and received your spirit, but maybe, Lord, life is such that our fire has grown cold. We ask that by your grace you would bring your work and your life again to us. Would you send your spirit that the joy of our salvation would be restored and renewed. Father, would you help us in all these things? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.